It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Time for another Bible Geek, and I'd like to thank Jason Lawson right off the bat for uh, producing this thing. Uh, There wouldn't be any uh, more uh, Bible Geeks without Jason's capable, talented, uh, masterful skill. So, um, what do we got today in the rain barrel? Well, this is from Dr. Leonard McCoy. You may have heard of him. To the most learned geek. I've listened to your podcast for some time, having discovered it after having read a number of your books over the last 15 years or so. I should first like to thank you for providing a unique voice in biblical scholarship that is at once skeptical but also respectful of tradition. I have found that your attitude toward the Bible has helped me a great deal as an atheist with approaching the religious beliefs of my family and in-laws in a respectful and non-confrontational manner that nevertheless does not not require cognitive dissonance. Well, Bones, that is exactly what I'm aiming at. I'm glad the uh, seed hit fertile soil. Thank you. Okay, back to to Leonard McCoy. My choice of pseudonym is motivated by the fact that I am a surgeon and lifetime Star Trek fan. I can think of few fictional characters that better epitomize Uh, the oath of Hippocrates and commitment to their patience than Leonard Bones McCoy. Stop thinking with your glands. Oh, sorry. I aspire as a physician to the character's dedication to his patients almost as an ideal type and humbly request that I could go by this moniker on your illustrious podcast. Yeah, uh, uh, my uh, daughter Victoria used to uh, call Star Trek the Leonard McCoy show she loved him so much and he is great a uh, great actor great character in fact my favorite uh, uh mccoy scene though there you know a huge number of great ones um but uh i think that i got the hugest kick out of is in uh the uh, star trek uh the voyage home the one with the whales when uh, the Enterprise bridge crew goes back to uh, the uh, 20th century and Chekhov is injured and brought to a hospital, which you'd think could be a favor, uh, is uh, it, it uh, alarms the crew once they find out about it. And they have to, uh, uh, Kirk and McCoy, uh, invade the, the hospital to save him from the clutches of barbaric 20th century medicine. It is hilarious as, as satire. So we're dealing with medievalism here, Jim. It's the goddamn Spanish. Inquisition. Oh, that is so, so great. Anyway, uh, back to Bones. I would like to add to the discussion in a recent episode regarding God as a proper name in the Chinese language, with Jesus having, in effect, the same family name as Yahweh. The question was asked whether something similar occurs in Korean or Japanese. Well, in Korean, the Christian god is called Ha-Nu-Nim, with a syllable sounding like the word for a laugh, the middle with a short O-O vowel sound like nook or book, uh, and uh, the last syllable, Nim, pronounced Neem. The short double O sound is Romanized as U, so that would be Hananim. Okay. Uh, this means literally something like honored sky with the word uh, uh, Hanuel. I don't know if I'm saying it right, meaning sky or heaven. Nim being an honorific suffix. Sometimes it is written or spoken as uh, uh, 
Hanunim Geso, with Geso being an additional honorific, turning it into a gloss like most respected honored sky. Uh, in China, doesn't Shangdi mean uh, the sky? Uh, and of course, uh, Zeus means bright sky, ultimately. Okay, anyway, sorry. Uh, Jesus, on the other hand, is referred to as just Yesu, not too different from the Hebrew, I guess, or Yesu Nim, honored Jesus. Uh, so as far as I understand Korean, which is by no means as a native speaker, uh, see below, there is not an analogous rendering of Jesus having the same family name as the father. Having taught over the years in a seminary and even having some experience with the Unification Church, you can, off, uh, can you offer your thoughts on why Asian and Asian American Christians tend to choose more conservative evangelical congregations? My beloved wife is Korean American and grew up in Korean and Baptist. I'm sorry, in Korean Baptist and non-denominational churches. She espouses predestination, but I don't think she would recognize or be able to describe it as such, or that some of the other beliefs she and my in-laws hold would essentially be described as Calvinist. I find it fascinating that they, at least because they are, are laity, haven't ever seemed to give much thought to the source of the specific doctrines they hold. Have you found this with any of your students in the past? Well, most of the Korean students I had at Drew, and there were a number of them, large Korean contingent there, were, of course, industrious and highly intelligent. I just minutes ago uh, got done writing a letter of recommendation for one of them for uh, a position on a faculty uh, and uh, did uh, fine work. Uh, and and uh, some of mine who were grad students were very open uh, to biblical criticism and really, uh, really enjoyed it. Many were not, though, and I think the conservatism comes from the American missionary roots of their churches. And because uh, as far as I know, the well, you've either got that or fascinating syncretistic churches uh, like the Unification Church and some of its one time rivals who were either outcompeted or absorbed by it. Uh, the, uh, the, the Unification Church started with a kind of charismatic Presbyterian group, as I recall, uh, sort of Pentecostalish, also uh, combined with Korean folk religion. Uh, so like the divine principle of the statement of unification theology, not exactly a scripture, but sort of analogous to it. Uh, it combines the Bible and the Chonggam Nok uh, and uh, the messianic uh, beliefs of unificationism uh, combined uh, the second coming of Christ with the uh, Korean expectation of the true man. I forget the Korean uh, name for him. But uh, you you have uh, a real, that is a genuine mixture of Asian and Western Christian ideas in the ever-fascinating Unification Church. I still have friends on the faculty up there. Uh, I just have always been very impressed with them. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the stuff you used to hear about them was largely hysteria, it seemed to me. Uh, but uh, I think really it comes from the uh, the uh, western missionary influence especially of presbyterian and methodist but also i guess pentecostal uh, missionaries so i mean that may be over simple but that that would be uh, my guess and uh, like you know billy graham would preach to millions of uh, people in a rally in korea and that kind of shows the uh, the predilection for, for that sort of influence. Okay. Thank you. Bones. Uh, let's see. Um, let's see here. I gotta do some scrolling. Uh, I have two questions. Uh, first, I recently spent some time in the Republic of South Sudan. Wow. Uh, where I witnessed several 
animal sacrifices, a dowry negotiation, and was blessed by a shaman. Uh, This left me wondering about how animal sacrifices and shamans were excised from the Jewish Christian tradition. Can you uh, spin a brief yarn on this subject? Well, I think that it uh, survived or popped up independently. It's hard to tell with any of these similarities uh, in uh, in the form of the uh, the seers, uh, the people like Elijah, Elisha, and uh, Samuel, who are said to have been circuit riding oracles and could find lost objects and stuff like that. The kind of thing you don't really associate with people like uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah who are on a different level and the Bible itself even says that uh, that in the earlier days uh, the um, the prophets were were seers and I mean there's no book of oracles of Samuel or Elijah or Elisha aside from some pretend apocrypha later uh, and uh, that's because nobody would have expected them to be giving out judgments on the nations and so on. I mean, you can kind of imagine Elisha doing that during the wars with Syria, but nothing survives. And that might even secure the point better that that's not what these guys were about. And uh, the fascinating book by what's his name now? J.M. Fields, I think. Um called Angels and Ministers of Grace. Uh, this guy was an anthropologist, and uh, he did a lot of work in, uh, I think, uh, Arabian countries and uh, and sub-Saharan Africa. And he zeroes in on the various stories in both testaments of, uh, of women unable to uh, give birth and uh, until they're visited by an angel uh, and uh, who says, okay, you are going to have a, a son and you should name him this and he's going to do great things. And he says, this sure sounds like it's barely veiling uh, a common practice in these societies even today, whereby uh, a a couple cannot produce offspring and naturally they blame the women being chauvinistic. And and, and so when the, the man of God or the prophet or the shaman or the angel, which could mean any of those things, right? When he shows up, what happens is uh, it's the the fault, quote-unquote, of the husband. Uh, He is uh, sterile. I guess it's sterile versus barren, right? Uh, And no sperm count uh, to speak of. Uh, So he's the reason they're not having kids. Um, But uh, they don't realize that. And so the shaman, uh, or whatever you call him, uh, has sex with the uh, woman, and she does conceive. And that's uh, it's because, you know, she wasn't really barren. She's just, uh, you know, not getting the ammo. And uh, so uh, he Fields says, look, that's got to be what's going on here. That doesn't necessarily mean there was a historical Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, etc., and uh, Manoah and his wife and all that. No, it just means that these stories, I mean, there could be some historical core to them, but that the, the common knowledge that this sort of thing went on is is what seems to be tactfully delicately uh, reflected in these stories and uh, so uh, and, and the healing methods of Jesus uh, spitting on the tongue of the mute uh, spitting on the ground to make mud to put on the eyes of the blind these are obviously imitative magic and the uh, casting out demons and having visions and all that that certainly uh, fits the shamanistic thing and uh, a friend of mine uh, uh, Guy Salamone, uh, quite the scholar, uh, he uh, uh, wrote a book, I think, some sort of a piece, it's been many years ago, uh, called Jesus the Hebrew Shaman, and he's not the only one that has said that. Uh, or take a look at uh, Stephen uh, Davies, his book, uh, what the heck is it, uh, 
I think it's Jesus the Healer. That was the title of the first edition. There's another one out. I cannot think of what it is, but he uh, understands Jesus as a shaman. So uh, that does uh, show up, even the way Peter is depicted and, and the apostles of the apocryphal acts of the apostles who must have been based on these charismatic itinerants in the first couple of centuries of uh, the church, uh, they uh, seem to uh, fit the uh, the image of shamans. And uh, of course, you, you know, the, this is one of those things where you you can imagine that since shamanism occurs all throughout Central and South America and Asia and Africa, you might say uh, it's structuralism. Uh, human mind, is ba- brain is basically the same all over the place and needs and social arrangements are pretty much the same. And so these things would pop up. But uh, we pretty much know that a great amount of it was a matter of cultural dispersion because uh, the people we call Native Americans, a term I really cannot stand because of its historical uh, inaccuracy. Uh, They were uh, hardy Siberian immigrants who came across the Bering Straits. Uh, And uh, there apparently were indigenous Americans, whatever whatever that would mean, Uh, but it wasn't them. The people we used to call American Indians, and now it's trendy to say Native Americans, are really Siberian Americans. And uh, I mean, you know, they're fine folks if they come from Mars or whatever. I, I don't care. But just as a matter of being a pedantic windbag, uh, I uh, have to say, you know, I think it's uh, that's more accurate. Well, shamanism is big in Siberia and elsewhere in Asia. And so no wonder it pops up in all over the Western Hemisphere. And um, whether it went from uh, Asian peoples to Southwest Asia, Israel, and uh, the Canaanites like uh, Balaam and all that. I don't know. Again, it could have just popped up out of the same human uh, pool of possibilities. Anyway, um, uh, let's see. First. Oh, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. There's a little bit more of... uh, of that question. I didn't see the rest of it. Uh, South Sudan is itself a nominally Christian nation, though vestiges of the old-time religion remain, especially in regards to polygyny, the technical sociological term for male-dominated polygamy. That does mean many women or many wivesism. Um, oh, yeah, also uh, known for animal sacrifice. Polygyny is also practiced in nominally Christian communities in Asia, I'm told. In fact, the practice isn't um, uh, consigned to Christianity, but to Western traditions in the developing world or subaltern generally, much to the chagrin of Western missionaries. You know, the the chieftain, I've heard this long ago from missionaries, Suppose some African chieftain gets converted to Christianity. Well, there's one horror tale, whether it's true or not, I don't know. They told this guy, well, you know, as a Christian, you can't have more than one wife. Uh, I don't know what they thought he would do, but he had all but his favorite drowned. Uh, of course, that wouldn't necessarily be uh, the uh, the right inference, but what the heck are you going to do? Just kick them all out? Uh, nah. Uh, so that that is a challenge. Though, I, to tell you the truth, I do not know why uh, Christianity would not allow for this. Mormonism is Christianity, and there's plenty of polygamy going on there, even in Utah, where it's supposed to be illegal, uh, because uh, it's never negated in the Bible, and it was going on in the time of Jesus and the New Testament uh, with uh, rabbinic blessings. So, you know, I'd, I'd think that's a case where other Western values have been uh, assimilated into Christianity. Uh, let's see. So uh, it would seem as though the Western lines of the Jewish uh, Judeo-Christian tradition were more successful in eliminating polyamory than the non-Western traditions. Why? Well, I'm thinking it's because uh, of uh, influence from Greek philosophy and uh, Roman jurisprudence, though I don't know enough about it to, uh, to be sure of that. 
second, I'm starting to do research on deconversion, the process of converting out of a religion and into non-belief or back into some previously held religion. I'm hoping you will know of some good material on the subject. It certainly can be a tricky one. It's still illegal in quite a few countries under the trade names blasphemy and apostasy and heresy, uh, though mostly in Islamic countries. Uh, mainly, it is illegal only on the books, but it can be enforced uh, in Sudan, just like in Utah. Uh, in Sudan, for example, 25 men were charged with apostasy in December of 2015, according to the Pew Center, perhaps an appropriately named uh, outfit. Do you know of any ancient deconversion accounts or important scholarly treatments of the topic, or is this more a modern phenomenon? Um, I guess I guess I'm asking if you know of any reverse or is it inverse Saul of Tarsus moments. Uh, if you're interested, I'll write in with my deconversion experience, since you and your other listeners have been kind enough to give yours. Yeah, sure. This is Daniel Thomas Mollenkamp. Please do, uh, Dan. Love, love to hear you. Uh, my friend uh, Ed Babinski uh, put together a book called Leaving the Fold, which is a big collection of testimonies, hallelujah, from people that left fundamentalism. I believe, uh, I'm pretty sure Prometheus Books published this. I'm sure it's still available. Then there is another one with the same title. I cannot think of the name of the woman that wrote it or the publisher, but I'm sure if you look that up on Amazon, just leaving the fold, uh, both would pop up. There is a book uh, by Philip Helfer, H-E-L-F-A-E-R. Ah, boy, what the heck is the name of it? It was a Beacon Press book. Oh, man. Was it the, I think it may have been the psychology of religious doubt. That is a really fascinating set of case studies, half of them, with uh, how it had a therapeutic integrative effect for these guys to leave uh, their religion, but for these to go in a more religious direction. It's really, really fascinating stuff. I think I got the title right, but if you can look up Philip Helfer, H-E-L-F-A-E-R, I don't think there's an intentional pun with hellfire there, but you never know. Uh, and if you looked up uh, the psychology of religious doubt, even if they're different pieces, they would both be be good. Uh, two different books, possibly, but I think it's that's the author and title of the same work. And uh, there are others that would probably come up on Amazon having looked those up. I have a, an appendix to my book, Beyond Born Again, um, about um, advice for people contemplating leaving fundamentalism uh, so as not to become a anti-religious fanatic and uh, not to give heed to threats of hellfire that were used to scare them into staying within the fold. And of course, the rest of Beyond Born Again is a whole mess of uh, arguments against fundamentalism, though I'm very careful to say I am not trying to argue against Christianity or even against evangelicalism. I'm merely saying there there are a lot of bad arguments and stupid approaches that evangelical Christians would be well advised to drop and, and then, of course, see if they have any real reasons for it or healthier versions of its practice. And I'm not saying you won't, uh, but, uh, you know, you, you need need to drop the intellectually dishonest and emotionally immature nonsense. So I think you might find that helpful. I have been told that that helped a lot of people rethink their faith. And again, personally, I don't care what anybody believes as long as it's not dangerous to other people or to themselves. Uh, so, you know, I uh, the old thing, you know, some of my best friends are Lilliputians or whatever. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not quite sure why that 
what's wrong with that. Uh, but uh, in fact, I have I've always had and still am proud to have uh, conservative evangelicals or even outright fundamentalists as good friends. Uh, I just don't uh, give them the test of faith, so to speak. You know how in politics you're not supposed to have a religious test for office. I don't have an anti-religious test for friendship. Yuki, uh, John Novak, uh, in my own theological speculations, I have long wanted to study the idea of a straight equ uh, equivocation, or do you mean uh, equation, uh, of Christ with the Old Testament Sophia, wisdom. I was wondering if you could give a rundown of sources in descending order of antiquity which deal with this. I know that yeah, you read my mind. Uh, the, uh, I know that Philo of Alexandria imported the Greek logos into Jewish thought because he was uncomfortable with the supposedly feminine character of wisdom. Uh, that's right. He said it would be better to call this creative uh, extension of the Godhead uh, the Logos because it'd be more fitting that uh, it'd be male than female. I <laughs> Chauvinistic. Uh, this gives us at least Sophia equals Logos. And the Gospel of John gives us Logos equals Christ. How common was it to go from there to Sophia equals Christ? I know the Gnostics venerated Sophia, but in the material I'm familiar with, they considered her separate from Christ. Uh, there was a brief mention of this, I think, in one of the excerpts from one of the German pietists you read in a recent podcast, but I really want to find sources as ancient as possible for this. Yeah, that really surprised me, that uh, that passage from one of the pietists. Um, there are various um, modern works on this. Uh, one of them, uh, kind of interesting, is M. Jack Suggs, S-U-G-G-S, uh, Wisdom Christology and Matthew's Gospel. Um, there is, uh, um, um, at least one book. Uh, by uh, the great Elizabeth with an S, not a Z, Schussler Fiorenza. Schussler is S-C-H-U with an umlaut over it, the two dots. S-S-L-E-R, and Fiorenza, F-I-O-R-E-N-Z-A. Uh, part of the title is Sophia's Child, I think it's Sophia's child and so-and-so, or so-and-so and, -so and Sophia's child, but I, I'm sure. And then she takes off from the the statement, uh, to what shall I compare this generation? They're like children bickering in the marketplace. The girls want to play uh, mourner and wail, and the boys want to uh, sing and dance, because those were like culturally uh, prescribed roles that the adults played. Uh, and so they can't get together, and Jesus says, uh, that that's just like you saying uh, that, uh, uh, that John the Baptist came who came neither eating nor drinking must have been a demoniac uh, but the son of man who came eating and drinking oh, he's a glutton and a drunk he says that's, that's all you're doing nobody can win and he says nonetheless wisdom is justified by her children now that could just mean the results of wise behavior will out you, you'll see we were right despite your absurd uh, caviling uh, right now. Uh, well, she says that Jesus, the historical Jesus, I think she's saying, um, understood himself and John the Baptist to be apostolic uh, emissaries of the divine wisdom as a hypostasis of, of God. Uh, and uh, I, I find that uh, kind of unconvincing, but it's possible and it's certainly worth a look. And she is certainly a great scholar and it would be uh, well worth your your attention. Um, uh, there is also a, uh, a famous um, article in German that I have never run across. I've only seen it referred to many times. 
uh, vice height und torheit and something or other. I, sheesh, I can't. But it's like the wisdom, the the importance of the wisdom figure in uh, in uh, early Christian Christology. I just can't think. I can't even recall who who wrote it. I'm uh, ashamed to say. I don't know why it's not been translated. Decades old. Um, in Gnosticism, you're right. Uh, there is a link between Sophia and and uh, the Christ Ion, and then uh, the the uh, the earthly Jesus. But there is kind of a a link, uh, a homology, because some Gnostics had a Eucharist, and the the wine was to symbolize the sufferings of Sophia. It's like a variation on the redeemed redeemer myth in other types of Gnosticism. Uh, but in some, it is Sophia who is rescued from this dark world by Simon Magus or others. Uh, let's see, I think um, there's some great stuff in the uh, book The Great Angel, a study of Israel's second god uh, by the great Margaret Barker. And she talks about how... Uh, Sophia or Chokhmah in Hebrew must be a survival of the Israelite goddesses, Asherah and Anat and so on, and even Isis. Uh, that is well worth uh, uh, looking at. So I hope some of that stuff uh, would be helpful, and I'm sure there'll be other materially referred to in there that you would uh, you'd find helpful. Ooh, let's see. Um, uh, Julian Jansen says, I've recently begun to listen to your Bible Geek podcast. I'm certainly no scholar of the Bible, but I am interested in that puzzle that probably many are concerned with, which is what the earliest texts of the Gospels and epistles really look like. I understand there are a large amount of textual variations which seem to cast a lot of uncertainty about the ability of any scholars to plausibly justify an interpretation of which language is original, or at least in the earliest copies. A hundred-plus years of telephone game is difficult to cope with. As I've recently looked at uh, and how little ground appears to be covered by the earliest manuscript fragments, those of the 2nd to 5th centuries, it occurs to me that there may uh, at least be a way of getting a range of probabilities that the frequencies of, vari of given variants existed in the earliest years, at least given the ones we have available. Specifically, I'm thinking that one could take frequencies from more complete later periods and use that as an assumed value for a given variant. That would at least give an idea of how infrequent certain readings would be, assuming the textual variant frequencies would be unchanged. If, for example, we find Find that a few given variants are uniformly in the earliest texts or appear fairly common but very rare in the later texts, it seems to me that would imply a high likelihood that the frequency distribution of the textual variants have changed. Unfortunately, I have doubts this can be used effectively to prove what the reading of the earliest text would be. In evidence, I'm thinking it could be a supply-side or demand-side phenomenon. On the supply side, it could be that a text with given textual variants could be used as a source to derive later copies. Um, on the demand side, the earlier theology could prefer one reading and that later theology could prefer a different reading. Attempted smoothing over of inconsistencies in one text or between texts is a possibility. But an inconsistency could be created from an otherwise consistent text because a scribe was trying to make a different point and simply did not notice the inconsistency he created by making one or a few changes. Do you think such frequency 
analyses could be or have been used effectively to argue for more probable original readings. Also, I would be greatly interested in knowing what your reasons may be for thinking all of the Gospels were likely written in the second rather than the first century, which I gather is your contention. Uh, thanks, Julian. I think you're describing important axioms of uh, textual criticism. There is an attempt to group uh, manuscripts by family trees of transmission, which you can, of course, uh, assess by uh, readings. Uh, do, do, uh, if a whole bunch of them have the same reading at a certain point, like do a whole bunch of them not have Father forgive them, they know not what they do, or for the Son of Man came not to destroy men's lives but to save them, or any of these things. Uh, or uh, how about in the Gospel of John, uh, no man has seen God, but the the only begotten Son has made him known, or the only begotten God has made him known. Well, if you, you can trace like a... Uh, a trajectory of the manuscripts that retained these uh, one reading or another. And uh, it's difficult. And sometimes text critics just cannot tell you that you, you can go back to the earliest manuscripts and they're still divided. Uh, you don't know who made the change, which way the change went or when, uh, how far back. Uh, but you, you can you can rule out a bunch of stuff, that, a bunch of textual corruptions that are just somebody accidentally skipping a line because it ends with the same word that the previous line did and he's <laughs> as I went to the end of the wrong line and skipped one sometimes you can tell when something appears to have been an interpolated side note a gloss like why did these people at the pool of Bethesda uh, wait till the water bubbled up in the, uh, the the pool there and first one in gets healed what the heck were they thinking and somebody said well there's a, a belief that an angel would invisibly come down and uh, stir up the water with his finger and oh that's it that's that's Raphael healing angel uh, jump in uh, well it doesn't say that though that probably is correct uh, and stuff like that where um, or where like the thing about women being silent in church in first corinthians 14 in some manuscripts it occurs a couple of verses earlier than in others and uh, that would make a lot of sense if uh, originally this was some scribe's comment uh, and uh, and, a, and a couple of uh, later scribes seeing that said oh i guess uh, my predecessor left this out by accident and went back and penciled it in on the margins well in my copy it'll be where it belongs which i guess would be uh, here and the other scribe independently did the same thing but made the different judgment call so sometimes there are uh, dead giveaways, but it it remains very uh, very ambiguous. It really is, and the textual, the manuscript evidence is uh, uh, much uh, wider and more diverse than these uh, United Bible Societies and uh, Nestle's uh, texts would let on. Uh, J.C. O'Neill and others have uh, put out tables of a fantastic array of variable readings, and uh, some of which are just disregarded. But uh, O'Neill makes a pretty good case, for instance, in his commentary on Romans, that uh, they should be taken seriously, and you get some interesting results as to what is likely an interpolation or not. The thing that really uh, gets people tearing their hair out is arguments, of which there are many, that this or that passage is an interpolation, but before the period from which manuscript evidence survives. And and generally, scholars say, well, uh, that's just, uh, just speculation. If you don't have to take it seriously, though a couple of them admit, well, if we did take it seriously, that would destroy the whole game we are playing. <laughs>
uh, that uh, you could never be sure what was originally in there. But, uh, you know, they're pretty uh, convincing to me. Uh, arguments offered by Winsome Monroe and William O. Walker and uh, various others that uh, several passages weren't in there. Uh, and that does give people fits. And why? Uh, well, because uh, they have this uh, sneaky agenda that this is holy scripture, uh, even if their own theology no longer really makes that possible. Uh, and they they at least want to do stuff like saying, well, here was the theological position of the Apostle Paul. Uh, maybe. Right? They don't want to have to say that. Uh, so uh, they're already doing something like this. Uh, and the, the horror of uncertainty, I think, especially comes from this ghostly and dangerous possibility that there are interpolations into the earliest manuscripts that can no longer be traced by hard copy evidence. Um, oh, let's see. Okay, why the second century? Well, for one thing, the Gospels uh, seem to be unknown uh, until about that time. And uh, we we have, uh, I mean, we know second century apologists like uh, Tertullian and Irenaeus had them. Uh, we know Marcion had some version of the, of the Gospel of Luke, um, though he wouldn't have called it that. Uh, that name probably wasn't on it. We know that Justin Martyr, again, like a, in the second century, knew of something he called the Memoirs of the Apostles. And he has several Jesus quotes, but they look like composites of different versions, like halfway Matthew, halfway Luke. Does that mean somebody did a gospel harmony that he's quoting from? Uh, or, or does it mean that, uh, that this is oral tradition, that these different sayings kind of bounced around a good bit? I mean, sometimes in between the synoptic gospels, there are sayings that are largely the same, but have significant differences because of either redaction or, or just unwitting harmonization via memory quote. And I believe Helmut Kessler believed that that's what was what was already happening in uh, in Justin Martyr's uh, memoirs quotes. Uh, Walter Schmidthal says the Gospels are virtually apocryphal uh, until the uh, second century that uh, nobody's heard of them. This goes into the question of why the heck do the Pauline epistles not seem to know any gospel tradition if it was circulating? I mean, of course, this is a big mythicist argument, right? Tell me why Paul, I mean, I forget written gospels even, the general, the circulation of these sayings of Jesus orally. Tell me why on earth Paul would not have quoted several of these that would have definitively settled many issues that come up in the epistles, but have no reference to, well, you know, Jesus settled this one. No, he doesn't say that. He just comes up with weird scriptural arguments or pulls rank or whatever. That's an even more serious version of it, but you don't really see the Gospels popping up until the second century. Plus, there are um, big hints of, of anachronisms. Uh, we're told that uh, rabbi, my teacher, my master, that did not come into currency as a title for Jewish scribes until the early second century. Uh, the, the reference in Matthew to the Pharisees who sit on Moses' seat uh, well, that's oh, it's just figurative. Well, uh, I hate to tell you, but that was part of synagogue furniture in the second century. Uh, probably whoever wrote this lived in the second century. And uh, uh, there, there are other things. Luke fits in with second century genres like Hellenistic uh, adventure novels and uh, apocryphal infancy gospels, uh, elements of the apocryphal gospels of Paul, Thomas, Peter, John, etc. Uh, I deal with this in the introductions to uh, the books in the individual gospels in my uh, book, the pre-Nicene New Testament, and the abridged version of that, the Human Bible New Testament. And I would refer you to that since I probably don't have the lung power to uh, cover all the ground here at the moment. You got some pretty good questions. 
Oh, let's see. One from the erudite uh, uh, Dr. Barton. Okay, I want to make sure I don't uh, mix up two questions here. Okay, I got Dr. Barton's. Listening to you ramble uh, speak on the subject of Gideon's ever-diminishing army, I had an amusing idea. Now, the usual theory of the tale is that it derived from a fairly typical tiny army defeats an overwhelming horde story. Uh, what kind of story is that? Let me just break off here. There was a uh, story that came out of the... It was the 1967 Six-Day War in Israel when all these Arab countries attacked them uh, and got their butts kicked. Um, in the story, uh, this uh, Arab force is traveling through the desert and uh, from behind a sand dune un up pops this little old Jewish soldier, uh, ragged uh, uniform, beard wrinkles uh, and he says uh, uh, you bastards uh, he, come over here and uh, I'll show you what's what and they're infuriated by the gall of this little homunculus and so one of them says uh, wait here I'll be back in a moment and so he uh, uh, goes uh, back there and they don't, he doesn't come back. The same thing happens. It happens again and again. And after a while, with the remainder of the Arab force, they're saying, what is going on here? Uh, and, uh, and, and one of their brethren staggers through the sand, bloodied and beaten. Uh, and he says, it's a trick. There are two of them. <clears throat> well, uh, I was like that one. And, uh, see, so that it is Gideon sounds sort of like that, right? A stratagem making you think there are more. And th there are a number of stories like that. Like in Excalibur, uh, Arthur's, uh, small force, uh, tricks, Mordred's much larger army and so on. Okay. Now, the usual theory of the tale is that it derived from a fairly typical tiny army defeats an overwhelming horde story. Okay, the Gideon story. As the story was told and before it was written down, someone, maybe several someone, said, uh, that's not a very impressive army, even for such a tiny nation. I'm not even a king, and I can easily raise a thousand men. Well, to explain Gideon's tiny little army, some storyteller built up the army, then pared it down to make Gideon's faith in God look even more impressive. Later, another story liked that angle of the story and built it up, then cut it down even further. So my rather tongue-in-cheek uh, alternative uh, is that Gideon actually had the large army, but it was... Uh, an army of guerrilla fighters up against a larger, more professional army. Not being stupid and trust in God goes only so far, he divided his assembled men by ethnic divisions, similar drinking habits and the like, but while he sent them to other locations, he didn't send them away. Where he once had a large army of 32,000 men, he now had a hundred armies of 300 men or so. These were all positioned around the Midianite army of 135 5,000 men, which I doubt was a monolithic force. When the signal was given, Gideon's men attacked from all directions, quickly dividing the Midianite army, dividing it again, and then finally defeating it in the midst of incredible chaos. That's just the military tactics. The brilliant part of the story was that when Gideon spread news of the victory, he gave credit for the victory to each individual army in their home regions. Be sure the... I'm sorry, I skipped, added a word. Uh, sure, the leaders knew the truth of the victory, but hey, when the big guy wants to give your tribe all the glory, at least when he's visiting them, you shut up, accept the glory, and give the leaders from the other nations the old wink and nod whenever you meet up. Everyone knows the truth. Everyone accepts the lie. Everyone's children tell the only story they know. Gideon defeated 135,000 men with only 300 men of their own tribe. Whose tribe? Wink Wink, wink, smile. Uh, could be, but uh, that is speculation, uh, it seems to me. I, I know you're saying it's tongue-in-cheek. It is very inventive, and uh, too bad you didn't write the story that way in the uh, 
in the uh, Bible uh, that because I guess my point was that though this is supposed to fit the Deuteronomic theology uh, that says you know you uh, the arm of flesh will fail you you dare not trust your own uh, something that pops up again and again in the Deuteronomic history uh, it's. Uh, in fact, it's strategy. They don't need the huge force. They can beat them with these tactics of making it seem like a huge force when it isn't. It's like David and Goliath. Was it some kind of miracle that little Dave managed to take down the gigantic Henry Pym-like Goliath? No, he, it's just tactics. He, he knew if he could give him a shot between the eyes with a stone at high speed, it'd be like shooting him with a gun and it worked, right? That it's just brains versus brawn in both stories. It doesn't really have anything to do with God empowering you, but the Deuteronomic historian seems to think that's what's going on. Uh, and uh, but I sure do like your version. That, that's good. Uh, yeah, it was three hundred. Uh, uh, well, which three hundred? Uh, you know, good stuff. Uh, this is going to take uh, a bit of time. But I'll just uh, finish with uh, this one for today. It is very interesting. You know, I've mentioned occasionally that uh, that uh, um, the uh, sacred mushroom used by the Vedic priests is thought to have been Amanita muscaria, hallucinogenic mushroom. Uh, and uh, somebody or other, I uh, forget the first name, Wasson, W-A-S-S-O-N, wrote uh, the the big book on this Soma, um, Divine Mushroom of Immortality. And there's and then uh, there was John Allegro's fascinating uh, the Sacred Mushroom and the Cross. And so there's a, an ongoing discussion of whether uh, hallucinogens or entheogens um, were crucial at the origin of religion. That's where people got the idea of an usually unseen but fantastic world of the divine. Well, um, uh, let's see. It, th this is a fascinating a statement, really, a response from Vairokana Asura. What a great name that is, if you know anything about the Hinduism and Buddhism, and I know a bit about it. Vairokana is the name of the all-encompassing uh, Adi Buddha uh, the, uh, in, uh, in uh, some Mahayana Buddhist uh, thinking, that he contains the five Jani Buddhas within himself and is sort of a Buddhist creator. And then Asura, well, they were like the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the gods, uh, the, uh, not the, uh, the, the top gods like, uh, Vishnu and Shiva and Varuna and so forth. Uh, but, uh, they were the, the lords and uh, comparable to the Titans in Greek, really just an earlier, dynasty of gods. Okay, this is kind of long, but it's interesting. Let's uh, give it a try. Um, i got to scroll back up to the... Uh, okay, uh, I first of all would like to thank you for your informative podcast. Following your book recommendations, I have perhaps single-handedly pushed uh, Jeff Bezos to his multi-millionaire status. <laughs> oh, I know the feeling. I am a proud axe-grinding Hindu apologist, and when I heard in several podcasts your repetition of the theory that the Vedic Soma was the Amanita Muscaria mushroom, I seized my axe and started grinding. Please forgive me that I don't have the exact sources. As an Boy, this is really exciting to me, to have a Hindu apologist uh, in our midst. I love this. Uh, as an aside, uh, before the main issue, as an apologist, I am strictly defensive and only address fundamentalist critics of Hindu thought and practices, as well as missionaries who scandalously distort the Vedic text with their puerile pesherism. I love this guy. Uh, I would like to offer a different view of the Vedic Soma. 
Wasson is the earliest reference to this idea that I have found, though I suspect it may trace to 19th century missionaries. Terence McKenna suggests that it is another mushroom, uh, Psilocybe cubensis, the, his book The Food of the Gods, page 41. Doniger holds it to be a possible identification with the, the Soma, uh, the Hindus and alternative history. Um, I think Wendy Doniger, page 122. The Vedas Samhitas, especially the Rig Veda, written 1700 to 1200 BC, themselves provide us with a variety of details about the Soma plant, such as its rites and its effects when drunk. When the evidence of the primary texts is examined, it in no way supports the identification of the Soma with the mushroom. The only real candidate is ephedra. The, uh, uh, I'm having trouble with this one. The Itarea Brahmana, uh, 900 BC, these are like layers of commentary on the Vedas, uh, contains details of the preparation of the Soma plant into the Soma brew, and there is nowhere in this text nor in the references to the rites in the Rig Veda where urination is involved. Now, where, where would I have said it was involved? Well, I guess Wasson and the others say that the, the priests would drink the Soma juice straight up, uh, but it was considered too powerful for the weaker brethren, and they would have to drink a derivative version by drinking the urine of the priests who had drunk it straight. So this would cut it. Okay. Um, appearance of the Soma plant. The color most frequently used to describe the Soma plant is yellow. Nowhere is it described as any tone of the color red except once metaphorically, referring to the Soma brew, not the plant itself. We find this in several verses. Uh, uh, when the yellow soma plants milk forth their juice as cows from their udders, Rig Veda 8, 9, 19, uh, Rig Veda 9, 2, 6. This is repeated in the Atharva Veda. Uh, 20, 141, uh, that's the fourth of the Vedas. In the Sama Veda, the plant is the second one, kind of a breviary. In the Sama Veda, the plant is described as golden-hued. Uh, Sama Veda 1, 5, 2, 4, and uh, 6, 1, 5. This variation in color may reflect seasonal changes, as we also find the plant described as brown, Rig Veda 8, 29, 1. Perhaps this is at the end of the long, dry season. In addition to the color, we are told that Soma is a stalk, Atharva uh, Veda, so-and-so. Uh, this is never modified with an adjective, so we do not know, based on this, whether the stalks were long or short. Uh, but we are given the additional information that the Soma possessed well-nourished branches, uh, Rig Veda, so-and-so, and it is described by classical and modern commentators in key mantras in the Yajur Veda as a sprig, Seven and eight. Of course, now we got all four Vedas on the table here, right? The Rig Veda, Sama Veda, Yajur Veda, Aj uh, and Atharva Veda. Uh, it, uh, Martin Note would love this. It makes a tetratuke. It should be clear from this that the Soma plant cannot be a mushroom. There's nothing in its description which matches. The habitat of the Soma plant. The most frequent reference to where the Soma plant grows is on mountains, Rig Veda and Sama Veda, so and so, and once on ridges, Rig Veda, so and so. We're also told the plant is more plentiful because of the rainy season, Rig Veda, so and so. Only once is the plant ever associated with an identified geographic region. In the Rig Veda, this is called Rajika country. Rig Veda, so-and-so, and in the Sama Veda, there is a slight change, as it is called Arjikas, uh, Sama Veda, etc. This is the uh, Arjikaya River, which is now generally believed to be the Harrow River in northern Pakistan. This runs through the Pothahar Plateau, which I'm probably 
terribly mispronouncing these, which is a rolling lowland region extending from mountains. The region is semi-arid. The Atharva Veda supplies us with one more piece of information about the habitat where Soma may be found. The seers tell us there is a plant, a plant companion. Once again, I'm doing my bad accents to sort of have to say quote unquote, a plant companion, Atharva Veda, etc., to the Soma. In Sanskrit, this is called Kustha. The translators identify this with the Latin name Costus speciosus, or crepe ginger in English. The effects of the soma plant. The effect of the un, I'm sorry, the brother, oh, snap out of it, Price. The effect of the prepared soma brew on those who drink it was dramatic. Some of the most colorful language uh, in the Vedas is used to describe this experience, which can be reduced to one word, exhilaration, and various references from the Rig Veda. This is not a numb, euphoric state in which the drinker is an absorbed in an inner experience such as that generated by the hallucinogenic mushroom. This was a physical exhilaration. The hymns are quite clear on this point. The Yajur Veda calls this the wild rapture of the juice. The hymns of the Samavedas sing in a similar language, describing the wild joy we crave. Uh, there is no mantra of the Samhitas, which I think is the original collection with that before the, uh, the commentary layers. Uh, there is no mantra of the Samhitas which states that one takes Soma in order to perceive the devas, the gods. Uh, the nature of this joy is made clear in epitaphs for Soma, such as Mighty Winged Soma uh, and the Red Bull. Interesting. Huh? Uh, the original energy drink. This is because it is said that it moves like a bull. And in the Ayurveda, the plant is called the offshoots of the bull. The experience of the brew is also expressed through other symbols of powerful animals, such as a steer and a horse, an ox, a king of elephants, and a falcon. The sages of the Vedas also speak less poetically and more directly about the elation of the Soma brew, frequently telling us that this exhilarating liquor gives one excellent vigor. It is also said of the bliss-bestowing stream of the Soma brew that it sustains our energy and is the agitator of all. Another important point is that this was not drunk just ritually, but was used by the Aryan warriors, who in the Rig Veda did wear horned helmets, unlike uh, Vikings. Uh, huh? I got some punctuation that confuses me here uh like uh, i guess uh uh images from vedic hymns and rituals by uh danga he has uh, pictures of this apparently much like the berserkers among the germanic tribes we see in the mythic representation as well as di direct statements in the texts Lord Indra, by the way, I got an action figure of him on the shelf. It's pretty nifty. Uh, Lord Indra receives the largest share of the Soma sacrificed, and he is often described as drinking the Soma in many hymns. We're told that the Soma makes Lord Indra stronger uh, to such an extent that heaven and earth cannot contain Indra when he drinks the Soma. The Soma is not given to the Deva as an offering of adoration so that Lord Indra may simply enjoy the ecstasy uh, of the intoxicant. This frenzy and increase of strength is given so that the Deva will assist the Aryans in battle against their enemies, be they physical, such as the Dasyas, the indigenous inhabitants of India, or the etheric race of the Asuras. The, the titans. We're told directly that Indra drinks the Soma to repel foes, and that Indra and Soma eradicate works of evil. Soma enables Lord Indra to gain the wealth of unbelievers in combat, as well as to slay the powerful Vritrasura, uh, the, the divine dragon. Uh, Lord Indra and Soma together destroy Raksha, Rakshasa and cannibals. 
This is also seen uh, in the many military epitaphs for Soma. One of the most prominent is some variation on the theme that Soma is foe-destroying or gives foe-destroying exhilaration. The warriors excited to heroism by the Soma to crush the Dajas and drive off the black-skinned Rakshasas. The Soma both speaks encouragement in war as well as proving to be a hammer against the foes in battle. For these reasons, the Soma is also called the Guardian of the Homestead. In the next verse, we see that warrior princes return from the battlefield still under the influence of the Soma brew, which they carried in leather drinking skins. This is really fascinating. They had drunk before at some point during the battle or cattle raid, which was more common. Six princes came to me in pairs, bearing pleasant gifts in the exhilaration of Soma. I received two straight-going steeds from Indrota. I received two excellent chariots from the son of Athifigna, two with excellent ornaments from the son of Ashvameda. There's much more uh, which could be said on this subject, but I feel that this email will already be stealing away time, so I'll cut it short here with a hope that you will consider these points. As a final point, remember that Lord Ganesha loves you, so how can you not love him back? Well, at least I do have a very old statue of him uh, in the dining room. Uh, do you feel guilty yet? Well, maybe I still have a lot of work to do to be a good apologist. Uh, Virokana Asura. I'm telling you, you are a good apologist. Uh, I really appreciate this. Very informative and fascinating. Thank you for taking the time to, to put that together for us. Um, let's see. Well, I guess I will... Uh, Stop it there. It's been about an hour, and I'll be back with you soon for another exciting episode of the Bible, or in this case, the Veda Geek. Okay, I'll see you then. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.